0: If someone was just making up the Bible they wouldn't have included Genesis 38. It recounts sordid events, it presents the covenant family in a bad light and it doesn't even seem like it needs to be here. Last year's West End run of the musical Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat featured an actress called Tamar Uh, but the musical just Completely skips over the story of the biblical Tamar. It goes straight from the events of Genesis thirty-seven, uh, from Joseph being sold as a slave, to Genesis thirty-nine, to what happens when Joseph gets to Egypt. And I'm sure there have been many sermon series on the life of Joseph that have done the same thing. I've heard of people who've stood up and walked out of churches when certain chapters of the Bible have been read aloud. And it wouldn't be surprising to hear if people had done that for this particular chapter. And so even the fact that this chapter exists is good for us because it reminds us tonight that we're coming to a book that no human being would make up. It's not that that sins like this don't, don't happen, but, but why, why record them in God's holy book? No human being would do that if they were making it up. And as well as that, the fact that, the fact that Joseph doesn't feature at all in this chapter, I think is helpful because it reminds us that these closing chapters of Genesis aren't uh, primarily about Joseph, though he's a big character in them. But they're ultimately about Joseph's God and his plans and purposes for the world. And we're going to look at this chapter under two headings this evening, saying firstly, Judah's sin, uh, but then secondly, God's grace. Judah's sin and God's grace. And it is important that we see both those things in this chapter. Judah's sin is serious, it's instructive for us to look at, but God's grace is stronger and his mercy is more. So, firstly tonight, we have Judah's sin. In the early 2000s, a German-language film came out called Downfall. It recounts the last days of Hitler and the downfall of the Third Reich. And But for God's grace, this chapter would describe the downfall of Judah. In fact, the very first verse of the chapter tells us that Judah went down. And we may well be meant to understand that spiritually as well as geographically. When God had called his father, Judah's father Jacob, to come back to him after years of drifting, God had told him, arise, go up to Bethel. And we saw when we looked at that, that that was both a a, a physical, geographical journey, but also a spiritual journey upwards but here Judah goes down. He goes down geographically and he goes down spiritually. And the first mark that he's on a downward spiral is who his best friend is. He goes away from the people of God to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hera. Now it's certainly true that Judah hadn't had the best experience of growing up within the people of God. His father hadn't set a great example with his four wives and his favouritism. Jacob had even used Judah and his brothers and their mum as a human shield at one point, uh, putting them in front of Rachel and Joseph. Uh, You can picture a young Judah standing there with Leah uh, and some of his brothers uh, and turning around and seeing Rachel and Joseph away back in the distance and saying, mum, mum how come we're standing here and they're way back there? Uh, That was the atmosphere he he had grown up in. And yet the answer to hypocrisy in the church, the answer to seeing bad examples where we should see good ones, it isn't to give up on the people of God altogether. It's not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But Judah does. He goes away from the people of God and makes best friend with an Adullamite and then marries a Canaanite. As we saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the summary of Esau's life in chapter 36, that was a complete no no for the people of God. Uh, but Judah does it anyway. He, he marries a Canaanite. And notice, by the way, I didn't say he fell in love with a Canaanite. That still would have been bad, but this is worse because this isn't even love, it's just lust. Verse 2 tells us that he saw her and he took her. We've seen this language already in the Old Testament and always has bad connotations. The sons of God saw the daughters of men and took them. Pharaoh saw Sarah and took her. Shechem saw Dinah and took her. Later on in the Old Testament, Samson will see a Canaanite woman and demand that his parents take her for him. David will see Bathsheba and take her. Uh, Sometimes it's translated differently in our versions, but, but it's the same two words every time. And every time that happens, it's a throwback to the fall. Eve saw the forbidden fruit and she took it. Judah's wife here doesn't even get a name. Her dad's name is Shua, but we're not told what her name is. Just like with Samson's first wife, it's another hint that this isn't about love, it's just about lust. Um, we see the same attitude perpetuated in Judah's sons, or at least his middle son, Onan. With Judah's first son, Er, we're not told what his sin was, just that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death and that is a a stark stark verse because it's not actually the sort of thing you read about very much in the Bible God does at times strike people down in the Bible more often groups of people rather than individuals Uh, you think of those involved in Korah's rebellion in, in the book of Numbers but given how sinful we are and how holy God is, we, we might actually expect to see it happening more. Uh, when actually it's rare. But that just makes the times when it does happen all the more sobering. And maybe we, we read this and we'd like to say, well, that was in the Old Testament, that wouldn't happen anymore. But then we read 1 Corinthians 11 where the Apostle Paul says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And so as another New Testament book puts it, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Ur, whose very name is a Hebrew word for evil, spelt backwards, is put to death. And so is his brother Onan. And But for God's grace and patience, we would all face the same. So what was Onan's sin? Because we are told about it here in verse 9. Um, for the, the Roman Catholics, it's very simple. Uh, this is the explanation on the website catholic.com. Uh, it says the Lord took Onan's life because Onan engaged in contraceptive sex. Uh, for them, it's very, very uh, cut and dry what's going on here. Uh, according to Roman Catholicism, any form of contraception is sinful. And this is their evidence. They even name the sin after Onan, calling it Onanism. But that really misses the point of what's going on here. If Ahmad at that time died without any children, his brother had the responsibility to father a child for him so that the dead man's name would live on in the promised land. It seems a very strange custom to us. But remember that the land that pictured heaven itself... So for your name not to live on in the land was a picture of your name being blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. But Onan refuses to do it. Or at least he he doesn't refuse to go into his brother's wife but he makes sure that no children will come about as a result. And that is a doubly selfish thing to do. Firstly it's selfish because by making sure no children are raised up for his brother it means he will get the inheritance of the firstborn and it's also quite simply using his brother's wife notice he doesn't refuse to go into Tamar but all he wants to do is use her and so God puts him to death too And at this point Judah realises what's going on, or, or at least he thinks he does. Judah sees the problem. Uh, the problem Judah thinks is Tamar after all she's she's the common factor in the deaths of his two sons. It couldn't possibly be anything to do with the fact that his sons or at least Onan use and abuse women the way he does. No, surely Judah thinks it can't be that. And so he decides that Tamar, who in reality is is the victim in all this, he decides that she's actually the problem. And so he tells her to go back to her parents' house to stay a widow. And he'll get in touch when his third son is old enough to marry her. But it's very much a don't call us, we'll call you kind of thing. He has no intention of letting her anywhere near his third son. He's lost two sons already and he has uh, identified her as a problem. And as time goes on, as Sheila gets to the age where he could have married her, Tamar sees that nothing is happening. And so she takes matters into her own hands. She dresses as a prostitute. Uh, she waits where she knows that Judah will be passing. And she, in the end, conceives his child, uh, making sure to hold on to the equivalent of his driving license and credit card as evidence of who the baby's father will be. Couldn't take a paternity test in those days, but, but she holds on to, to enough evidence to make clear. And for me, the most tragic thing about all this is that her plan depends on Judah seeing a prostitute and taking her. And that's exactly what he does. Tamar knows him too well. When it comes to women Judah sees and he takes, he is entirely predictable. And then three months later comes the most outrageous part of the story. When Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant, he responds with just two words in Hebrew. No discussion, no talking through what has happened, no asking for more details. Just just two words, bring and burn. Bring and burn. And we are rightly outraged at the hypocrisy of it. Judah's sexual sins are way worse than Tamar's. But as is all too often the case, those who rage against certain sins uh, actually turn out to have been secretly committing those sins themselves. Uh, We hear the, the echo of the Apostle Paul many years later, you who say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? So on one level we have the hypocrisy of it. But then on another level we have the fact that a woman's sexual sin is treated more seriously than a man's. I don't mean by God, I mean by the the culture of that day, uh, by the culture of our day as well, and and, and, uh, pretty much by by any culture in the world. There's no stigma in our culture for a man to sleep with a different woman every night. If he does it, he's a a bit of a lad in the eyes of many. but that's it. But, but if a woman would do the same thing, she, she would soon start getting called certain names. When actually they're both equally sinning in the eyes of God. And God actually calls out the hypocrisy of this in the book of Hosea. In Hosea 4.14 God says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. I'm not sure if if you've noticed that verse before. I hadn't really noticed it before this week. I will not punish your daughters when they play the horn, nor your brides when they commit adultery. Why? Why would God not punish them? Well, he tells us, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. That's almost like a one verse commentary on this entire chapter. Blatantly promiscuous Judah who's condemned his daughter-in-law to a life of celibate widowhood is ready to burn her for a sin that doesn't even come close to what he's done himself. So there's hypocrisy, there's, there's a double standard for men and women but there also seems to be a third level to all this as well because i said we, we don't read often in the Bible about people being struck down. We also don't read often in the Bible about by people being burned. Uh, stoning, yes, we, we read about it from time to time. Uh, but but the, the only thing uh, that burning would have been done for in, in the Bible would have been if the daughter of a priest was sexually immoral. Uh, that was the only time burning was to be a punishment. So Judah here is calling for the most severe punishment imaginable. And I think that raises the question, why? Why would he do this? And it's hard not to think that he sees this as his chance to get rid of her once and for all. And to punish her for what he thinks she's done to his two sons Remember, he blames her for their deaths. And he's worried that she's going to end up causing the death of his third son as well. And so he takes the chance, or at least tries to take the chance, to to completely remove her from the picture. He tries to exploit the situation for his own interests and have her killed. What a sordid and seedy chapter in the history of God's people. God's words to Jeremiah many years later come to mind, uh, talking about the nation of Judah, but, but the words are relevant to the person of Judah here as well. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond it is engraved. And but for God's grace, Judah's downfall would have been complete. And yet, amazingly, God still had a purpose for this man. And he still had a purpose for his family. And that's what we come to look at next. So having seen firstly Judas' sin, we see secondly God's grace. Judas' sin, but secondly God's grace. When prisoners in the United States are on death row, they sometimes get a last minute reprieve. An hour or two, maybe before they're due to be executed, the governor of the state might grant a stay of execution. It's hard to imagine the emotional roller coaster of thinking that you have hours to live and then suddenly having the threat of execution either paused or taken away altogether. And Tamar goes through something of that roller coaster here in verse 25. She, she has one last throw of the dice. She has planned for this eventuality, but it's still a big risk. Can you picture it? At this point, the fire may well have already been lit. She can perhaps smell the smoke coming from it. But as she is being brought out to be burned, she plays her one and only card. She produces Judah's driving licence and credit card and says, please identify who these are. It's almost word for word what Jacob's sons have said to their father in the last chapter. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Please identify, please identify. But at this point, given all that we know about Judah, what would we expect to happen? Well, surely we just expect that he would deny it, to push ahead with the execution. But by God's grace, he doesn't. God has used Tamar's actions to show him what he's really like. And Judah identifies them And says, She is more righteous than I. I think there's more to Tamar's question to Judah other than simply, Do you recognize these physical items? But behind that is the question, Do you recognize yourself? Do you see who you are, Judah? Do you see what you've become? Do you see the hypocrisy? Do you see the hardness of your heart? Do you see the delusion? Do you see the murderous hatred inside you? Do you see where you're headed? And by God's grace, Judah recognises that as well. He begins to see himself as he really is. And if God brings us to that point where we begin to see ourselves As we really are. That is his grace. Wasn't it? Burns that that said uh, that that prayed that God would give us the gift to see ourselves as others see us. But even more than that we need to see ourselves uh, as God sees us. Yes Judas upbringing has been in the midst of a very sinful family. But at the same time compared to almost anyone else in the whole world at that time. Judas still had had tremendous privileges. And yet look what he's capable of, look where he's going, look what he is about to do. And but for the grace of God, that's any of us. We think the biggest threats to us are other people, or that the biggest threats to us are are circumstances that we dread uh, coming to pass. But actually the biggest threat to us is our own sinful nature. And our only hope is that God in his grace through someone like Tamar or through painful life circumstances uh, or, or simply just through his word will wake us up to that. By God's grace, Judah's eyes are open to what he's really like and where he's going. And it's the start of his life turning around. Something else that God opens Judah's eyes to see is that, that he's no better than Tamar. And that is a turning point for any of us when we realize that we are no better than the people we used to despise. Either because we realize that we literally commit the same sins that they do, maybe just in different forms, or because we come to see that the only thing stopping us doing those sins is the grace of God. But either way, we see by God's grace that our smug superiority is just that. We see that we're no better than them. Uh, and if we do come to see that, that is God's grace. Everyone's always looking for someone to look down on. Uh, you know, we, even uh, people in, in prison, there, there's a hierarchy uh, one, one person's in for, for robbing uh, rich people, but, but, but he can look down on the, the people that are, that are in for robbing old ladies. Uh, we're always looking for someone to, to look down on and despise, but, but God's grace uh, shows us that, that we are, are no better than anyone else. And so by God's grace, Judah's eyes are open to who he really is, and by God's grace, he begins to change And the Judah we see in the rest of the book of Genesis is a very different man. And that all brings us back to the question of what exactly is Genesis 38 doing here? Maybe we see now that there are a few things we can learn from this chapter. uh, And maybe as a a standalone chapter it might be quite helpful. but, But why is it in the middle of the Joseph story and that is the big question when it comes to this chapter. Yes, we can draw lessons from it. But if we don't see why it's here at this particular point, well, we're, we're missing out on why God has put it here. The very fact that God has put it in this exact place in our Bibles forces us to ask that question. And I think there are a number of answers The first one relates to our first point this evening about Judah's sin. There is a big, big danger here that God's people are going to become just like the Canaanites. That they're going to intermarry with them and the godly line will be extinguished. And so the family of promise need to be taken away from Canaan for a while before they end up completely blending in with those around them. And that's what will happen as the family moves to Egypt. So, I think we can't say that for sure, but I think it's a a reasonable guess as to one of the reasons why this happens and why this chapter is here. It shows that the distinctive identity of God's people is in danger of disappearing unless they move somewhere else until the nation can be established. So, The first reason is tied in with Judah's sin, which was our first point. The second reason this chapter is here is tied in with our second point tonight uh, about how God used this incident to change Judah. I said uh, that when we next hear of Judah in Genesis, he's a different man. In chapter 43, the next time we hear of him, he's back among his brothers taking responsibility to his father for keeping Benjamin safe. And then in the next chapter, when Benjamin is facing prison in Egypt, Judah begs to be allowed to take his place. Judah, the man who sees and takes, is now willing to give up his life for someone else. And in that, he's actually becoming like Jesus Christ. But without Tamar, it wouldn't have happened. Without this chapter, uh, and without God's gracious intervention, he would have continued on that downward trajectory. And that brings us to the, the third reason why this chapter is here. And that is that Jesus Christ will be descended from Judah. And that's surprising to us because it seems on the basis of these final chapters of Genesis, that surely the Messiah will be descended from Joseph. Joseph uh, Joseph is the main character in these final chapters of Genesis. He's also far more righteous than either Judah or Tamar. His character is much more Christ-like. In fact, there's surely a deliberate contrast between Judah's sexual sin in this chapter and Joseph's sexual purity in the next chapter. But in God's plans and purposes, the Messiah would be born through Judah, not Joseph. Which just highlights the type of people that Jesus came to save. Did you know there are three women mentioned by name in the family tree of Jesus in the opening chapter of the New Testament? Three women and only three women. And who are they? Well, we've already looked at the first one, Tamar who had a child with her father-in-law, or children with her father-in-law. We have Rahab, who's a prostitute, and then we have Ruth, who's a foreigner, uh, from, from a nation born out of incest. That's how the New Testament opens. It's just a list of names on one level, but if you're paying attention, it's already becoming clear what type of people Jesus came for. Before Jesus is even born, it's already becoming clear what type of people he came for. And what type of people is that? Sinners. People like Tamar, Rahab and Ruth and people like us. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for sinners. He didn't come for those who looked the part. He didn't come for those who have it all together. He didn't come for those who always made the right decisions. He didn't come for those who, who lived in the way they should have based on their upbringing the Tamar of this chapter, the Tamar whose story we would probably rather skip over is the first woman mentioned in the New Testament. Who did Jesus come for? He came for the Judas and the Tamars of this world. And so it is right for us to to look at their sin and take warnings from that for us, but it would be wrong to stop there. Because the existence of this chapter and the fact that Tamar makes it into the family tree of Jesus testifies to a God whose grace is even more powerful than our sin. Amen. Well, let's continue to celebrate God's grace as we turn to the closing verses of Psalm 48. Psalm 48, 7 to the end on page 97. Psalm 48 uh, from verse 7 to the end uh, page 97 and then one verse over the page we sing in verse 8 about Judah's children, his daughters uh, then verse 9 tells us to walk around Zion and count her towers you know, in the Old Testament people could have literally done this uh, walked around Jerusalem and uh, looked at the city wall and, and walked around the temple. Uh, for us, under the New Testament, it means we're, we're we're to look at the people in the church. We're, we're to mark them. Uh, we're to see what they're like. Uh, but what sort of people will we see? Will we see people in the church with squeaky clean backgrounds? No, we'll see people like Judah and people like Tamar. We'll see people who've sinned spectacularly, spectacularly but people whose sin couldn't overthrow the grace of God. Psalm 48, 7 to the end, we'll stand and sing praise.